Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, She Did What She Could. Mary Anoints Jesus at Bethany. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 17th, 2013, the fifth Sunday in Lent. There's a wine store near us that's known for its vast inventory and helpful staff. Most of their wine is priced for average consumers like me. But some of it's meant for connoisseurs and collectors and is outrageously as expensive. As I write, their website features a bottle of 1985 French wine for $9,250. I wonder how my wife would feel if I bought that bottle of wine, brought it home, and then drank it with a sick friend who had only a week to live. My wife's a good and gracious person, but she'd respond like any normal human being. Are you kidding me? You did what? <clears throat> John's Gospel begins with a story of divine extravagance, for human enjoyment. The equivalent of 600 bottles of the best wine at the wedding of Cana in chapter 2. This was the first sign that Jesus did, said John. This week he bookends his gospel with another story of extravagance. Mary anoints Jesus with perfume that's worth a year's wages. Then the anointing of Jesus at Bethany is the last event in John's Gospel before Jesus' triumphal entry in the ensuing Passion narrative. From start to finish, then, life as a child of God is marked by excess and extravagance, both given and received. The story is reminiscent of another woman of prolific generosity in the Gospel, the poor widow who we read gave all she had to live on. That wasn't much by human standards, of course, but Jesus said it was more than all that the rich gave combined. The extravagance moves both ways. It's reciprocal, both given and received, by both God and his people. Sometimes God is the giver. At other times, we are. At the wedding party in Cana, God provided a surplus of wine. At the dinner party in Bethany, Mary gave a gift of expensive perfume. Whether divine or human, given or received, these acts of reckless abundance are signs of what life is like with the living God. At Cana, the divine excess was for a wedding celebration. At Bethany, Mary's extravagance foretold of an imminent death. <clears throat> if the suspiciously similar but different story in Luke chapter 7 describes the same event, the anointing of Jesus by a woman is one of the rare stories that's told in all four Gospels. It was a powerful memory for the earliest believers. Jesus says her act was so singular 
that from that time forth, wherever this gospel is preached, what she has done will, be, will also be told in memory of her. And how's this for unintended irony? Matthew and Mark never name this person. They simply call her a woman. Luke describes her as a sinful woman. There's a long history of identifying the woman as Mary Magdalene, although the Gospels never say this. John alone tells us that it was Mary, the sibling of Martha and Lazarus. What is the Spirit of God saying in this story of wild excess during the Lenten season of self-denial? During the last week of his life, Jesus stayed in Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. At a dinner to honor Jesus, Mary poured a pint of pure nard imported from India on his feet. Then she wiped his feet with her hair. The aroma filled the house. Almost every detail of this story breaks the social boundaries of the day. A dinner to honor Jesus ends with acrimony and arguments. A woman lies down beside Jesus. She lets down her hair then caresses his feet with outrageously expensive oil. What was Mary doing? The disciples were indignant. Why this waste? We could have sold this perfume and given the money to the poor. Yes, after three years with Jesus, the disciples had learned this lesson well, that care for the poor characterizes the people of God. But believe it or not, and although there's never an excuse to ignore them, there's something more important than care for the poor. They rebuked her harshly, writes Mark. Leave her alone, said Jesus. She's done a beautiful thing. In fact, Mary did more than she knew. Anointing Jesus was a gesture of personal devotion but it was also a prophetic act. Jesus said, when she poured this perfume on my body, she prepared me for my burial. Jesus wasn't just a wandering sage or a renegade rabbi. He's the anointed one. Anointed by Mary, yes, but especially by God. In Hebrew, the anointed one, he's the Messiah. And so Jesus says, she did what she could. And that's what we do in our own Lenten disciplines. We do what we can. Mary's anointing didn't save Jesus from his tragic fate, nor will our Lenten practices solve our every problem. But with Mary, we do what we can. We give our old selves to God without restraint, all that we have and all that we are. In return, we trust God for a new self shaped by his unlimited love. In the words of this week's psalmist, we sow in tears with the hope of reaping 
enjoy. In the reading from Isaiah, God invites us to forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. I'm making a way in the desert, streams in the wasteland. And in the epistle for this week, Paul says that nothing compares to the reciprocal giving and receiving of God's overflowing goodness. He writes to the Philippians, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. No, we haven't attained this, Paul admits. And to his radical aspirations, he adds a realistic somehow. But Mary shows us the way. She did what she could. In response to God's infinite goodness, we offer our unbounded gratitude. Mother Teresa once prayed, I will take what you give, and I will give what you take. For books this week, I reach back to 1996 and a novel called Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Little Brown, 1,079 pages. When David Foster Wallace's editor received the first 400 pages of Infinite Jest, he compared it to a piece of glass dropped from a great height. The crazy complexity of the 1,100-page story makes it hard to describe. In Infinite Jest, for example, time is subsidized by corporations, as in Year of the Tux Medicated Pad. A terrorist group from Quebec called the Wheelchair Assassins wants to attack the United States with a film that's so powerfully entertaining that whoever saw it wanted nothing else ever in life but to see it again, and then again, and so on. Some passages make you laugh out loud. Others stymie you. Single paragraphs run on for pages, and the infamous 388 footnotes themselves can have footnotes. The novel explores numerous aspects of American culture, national character, information overload, which the book mimics, suicide, and addiction to drugs, entertainment, and pleasure. In numerous interviews, David Foster Wallace said that he intended to write a book about sadness. The themes of addiction and entertainment for which the book is justly famous are really only vectors of sadness and loneliness. Wallace's biographer, D.T. Max, says that Infinite Jess is a story of people in pain. 
It has a very quiet but very sturdy and constant tragic undercurrent, writes novelist Dave Eggers, that concerns a people who are completely lost, who are lost within their families and lost within the nation, lost within their time, and who only want some sort of direction or purpose or sense of community or love. Wallace often said that he intended his fiction to explore what it means to live a life of human wholeness in a culture obsessed with individual choice, putative freedom, and rabid individualism, all of which result in a loss of purpose or ability to give yourself to something bigger. Joel Van Dyne, for example, a.k.a. Madame Psychosis, is a member of the union of the hideously and improbably deformed, whose members wear veils to hide their shame. A failed suicide attempt lands her in Innit House, a drug and alcohol halfway house. There she meets Don Gately, a former criminal, recovering addict, and current staffer at Innit House. He's also the only person in a cast of 200-plus characters who's found a way beyond psychic carnage to genuine healing, but not in the way you might expect. Gately is committed to the AA program, but it drives him crazy. He hates the corny slogans and saccharine grins and hideous coffee, the limply improbable cliched drivel, the goopy sentiment, the cultish brainwashy elements, and the smug psycho babbly jargon, which is, quote, probably just Unitarian happy horseshit. But if you hang in and keep coming, Gately found, you discover that the thing actually does seem to work, does keep you substance-free. It's improbable and shocking. Gately discovered that the trite can be true, how do trite things get to be true? Why is the truth usually not just un but anti-interesting? Because every one of the seminal little mini-epiphanies you have in early AA is always polyesterishly banal. But experiencing the true within the trite is only for people who out of desperation learn to keep it simple and to ask for help. With his own 30 years of clinical depression, drug addiction, psychiatric hospitalization, drug regimens, and AA experience, the novel tracks Wallace's real-life movement from irony to sincerity. The addicts at Ennett House distrust pretension and abstraction. They detest any effort to impress or attempt to perform. They can smell a fake a mile away. Don Gately found that it's got to be the truth, is the thing. The thing is, it has to be the truth to really go over the here. It can't be a calculated crowd pleaser, and it has to be the truth unslanted, unfortified, and maximally unironic. An ironist in a Boston AA meeting is a witch in church. Irony-free zone. Same with sly, disingenuous, manipulative pseudo-sincerity. Sincerity with an ulterior motive is something these tough, ravaged people know and fear, 
all of them trained to remember the coyly sincere, ironic, self-presenting fortifications they had to construct in order to carry on in the outside world. But as Gately learned, if you're willing to move from clever sophistication to genuine sincerity, you're encouraged to keep saying stuff like this until you start to believe it. In the end, Wallace became what D.T. Max calls a full-fledged apostle of sincerity. The clichés of recovery supplant the technical jargon of literary theory. Sincerity replaced irony as a virtue, and saying what you meant became a calling. Of course, this risks the condescension of the cultural ironists. At the end of his biography, Max makes a provocative comparison between Dostoevsky and David Foster Wallace. He writes, like the good old brothers K, as Wallace called Dostoevsky's novel, Infinite Jest counterposes sincerity and faith against moral lassitude. Both eschew stylish irony to make a simple point. Faith matters. David Foster Wallace. The novel Infinite Jest. For movies this week, I review a film called Amour, the French word, of course, for love. 2012, a film from France. Director Michael Haneke's film won a golden palm at the 2012 Cannes Film Festival for this portrayal of an octogenarian couple who come to the end of their long love. And although, and although the beginning of the film gives away the end, this being a Haneke film, the ending is nothing that you'd expect. George and Anne Laurent have enjoyed a long marriage. Then one day at the breakfast table, she experiences a stroke that paralyzes her right side. This is a one-way street, a slow but certain slide downhill. It's full of tenderness and humor, sacrifice and memory but also confusion, humiliation, and even desperation. One time Anne says she wants to die, and another she takes joy in the beauty of life. Then comes a second stroke. Of course, adult children, home care, and the doctor complicate things for George. Old age isn't for sissies. But that's not the end of the world if it's a love story like this film. George says to Anne, We've always coped, your mother and I. In French with English subtitles. <clears throat> and finally, for poetry this week, we've posted the prayer of St. Patrick. Of course, this Sunday, March 17th, is St. Patrick's Day. And so we've posted the famous poem prayer by St. Patrick of Ireland in the 5th century. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, 
through a belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth in his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion and burial, through the strength of his resurrection and his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of the cherubim, in obedience of angels, in service of archangels, in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of patriarchs, in preachings of the apostles, in faiths of the confessors, in innocence of virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock. <clears throat> I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's hosts to save me, from snares of the devil, from temptations of vices, from everyone who desires me ill, afar and anear, alone or in a multitude. I summon today all these powers between me and evil, against every cruel, merciless power that opposes my body and soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, against spells of women and smiths and wizards, and every, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ, shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that reward may come to me in abundance. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the eye that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through a confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, March 17, 2013, the fifth Sunday in Lent, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.